Hello you and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies where today we are talking about But I'm a Cheerleader with Ellie Kremendahl. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I'll soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. But I'm a Cheerleader is a 1999 American satirical teen romantic comedy film directed by Jamie Babbitt in her feature directorial debut and written by Brian Wayne Peterson. It stars, of course, Natasha Lyonne, Clea Duvall, RuPaul, and many other greats who we will mention over the course of this conversation. And Ellie Kremendahl is a queer writer, comic, and podcaster, and also has been, for like a decade and a half, a drama and creative arts psychotherapist. I'm stoked for this conversation. I love Ellie's work so much, and I was giddy knowing that she was going to join us on the show. We had a lovely conversation as a result. But before we get into that, how are you doing? What's going on in your world? How's your life? How's your family? What are you reading? What are you thinking about? What are you watching? What's going on? Find us on Twitter. Find us on Instagram. We're also on threads and Blue Sky, I guess. Uh, You know, we're there. We're trying to figure out which ones are sticking when Elon's finally collapses. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, what a world. But yeah, find us and let us know how you're doing in these places. And don't forget that you, my friend, you, you, the one who's hearing this right now, you, my friend, are good. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible with and by your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon or Apple podcast subscriptions. We're able to make it part of our livelihoods as a result. They make the show possible for everybody. uh, And we appreciate y'all who do that. Thank you so much for doing so. And in exchange, you get bonus episodes. In October, we had a bonus episode about Red Dragon. This month, we'll have a bonus episode about the second half of the latest season of And Just Like That. Maybe it's even more than the second half because we covered it before there was much to cover. (laughs) We were just so ready. We were so ready to do so. And then who knows what's coming up in December, but we'll know more soon and we will let you know. But thank you so much for making the whole thing possible. Everyone who supports us in those places, we appreciate you. And just know we uh, talk about the trials of being a young queer person in this episode. So there's some uh, potentially triggering stuff in there. That's something that comes up a lot in this movie. That's what this movie is about. And we discuss that. So know that that is coming up and on its way. But, you know, as always, we try to do it with as much love and compassion as possible. And uh, I feel like we achieved that, especially with Ellie. She's the greatest. Anyway, let's talk about But I'm a Cheerleader. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. One, two, three, four. (laughs) This is the movie I adore. Five, six, seven, eight. This movie is so good. Why the hate? (laughs) Not that anyone has hated it, but I think this movie is the Citizen Kane of high school lesbian movies, and it doesn't get enough credit. I was really surprised. I was flipping through Amazon reviews, and I was surprised at how, not surprised at how high rated it is because I have a low rating of it but i was i was like this feels like a thing people could have opinions on and want to interject into the world because that's how the internet works the only negative rating i saw was about the quality of sound on the blu-ray <laughs> nice <laughs> i was like that's fair it makes sense so uh, well alex have you seen any movies lately where kathy moriarty is trying to do conversion therapy on a bunch of kids and therefore puts them in bedrooms where they are separated by gender so they can be most likely to have sex with each other. Sarah, have you seen any movies lately from the 1990s, uh, one of the many in which Clea Duvall was not allowed to wash her hair? All of them. All of them. But especially this morning at 7.30, I watched But I'm a Cheerleader, which also that title could be But I'm a Cheerleader, but it's not. It's But I'm a Cheerleader. We are watching, but I'm a cheerleader because uh, Ellie Kremendahl brought it to us. And I am so happy and excited uh, Ellie is with us. Ellie. Hi. Announce yourself. (laughs) Hello, my name is Ellie. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love But I'm a Cheerleader and all things Melanie Linsky and Natasha Leone and Cleo Duvall. Oh, what a lineup. Yeah. What a lineup. Dream lineup. And Kathy Moriarty yes. and Rue. Dante Bosco. And Richard Mall. Richard Mall. We, we're big Richard Mall fans. <laughs> Why did you pick this one, Ellie, to talk about and unpack the feelings from? Oh, my God. I mean, there are so many movies that were sort of fundamental in my coming of age. But when I was tasked with thinking about it, this one just was in the most bold, fluorescently lit colors because (laughs) I cannot stress enough the paucity of queer representation at that time. (laughs) And when that movie came into my grubby little pause, it was so profound and important to me. I just, I cannot, it's really hard to put into words because of how impactful it was. And it's a fucking amazing, hilarious film. I mean, it's an incredible work of film, but it was really significant. Ellie, I'm going to say some words to you that might elicit a strong response, which are lost and delirious. (gasps) Of course, of course, (laughs) lost and delirious. I mean, it's like there was lost and delirious. There was the incredibly true adventure of two girls in love. Starring and just like that's Nicole Ari Parker. That's right. There was also like Bound, which is its own thing. But there was something special and different about this film. I mean, it was like young people and Clea, Natasha, they're both so hot. And and just the way that it navigates coming out, like there were there's so many little moments where I was just like, I've never once seen that reflected. Well, and it, it also is po- like it has a positive ending, which I think for yeah. like a lot of queer movies in the 90s, they all ended tragically. Yes. Alex, have you seen Lost and Delirious? I have. Uh-huh. <laughs> tragically i mean it's so true if if you've seen this movie you've really seen it but like i just want to highlight lost because i haven't watched it in 20 Mm -hmm. years and i would love to return to it we should for sure do an episode on it but lost and delirious is a movie where misha barton is like the nick caraway observing uh piper parabo and jessica pare having a fraught girls boarding school love affair and then jessica pare ditches Piper to like pretend to be straight and date a soccer guy and so Piper like you know the cheese kind of falls off her biscuit there nobody really helps her she gets really into falconry (laughs) and at the end of the movie she's like on top of a building like very clearly about to jump and the entire school is like there watching her with this kind of and they're all kind of looking like yeah that's nice. Oh my god. That good for you. You're really self-actualizing. And then she dies Ugh. and you're like does no one is anyone going to try and stop her? Yeah, and you see that and you're like, well that's what my life is going to be, I guess. Like it's it's a long walk to the top of the roof. Don't love a girl. <laughs> Everyone will kind of gently encourage you to jump off a building yeah but in put him a cheerleader it's like okay if the worst thing that could ever happen happens to you you're gonna end up in love with a really hot girl <laughs> and living with a bunch of couple gay dudes and it's gonna be amazing living with the guy from night court and in the back of a trick pickup truck being driven by rufio <laughs> uh, by rufio what a dream <laughs> such a dream we say I say this on almost every episode we talk about with regard to queer media in the 90s, but I just think it's important. It speaks to the the, the paucity you had spoken to, Ellie, is that the average young queer person sees maybe more queer media in a morning on their phone than we saw in all of the decade of the 1990s. Like, no joke. Like, that is the actual reality. So these movies were... It's hard to underscore how golden and important these movies were when they came out for everybody. Well, I was also thinking about Drew Drogi's Chloe 70 videos from 10 years ago. Do you guys remember those? No. There are just these like one to two minute comedy videos where it was like an impression of Chloe 70 that just felt very real where it's her being like, you know, things to do in summer gift and nectarine dessert to Taryn Manning (laughs) and stuff it's great it's good stuff but I remember I was watching it this morning and remembering how when those videos were first coming out in like 2012 or maybe even like 15 years ago I would like start one loading on YouTube and then like make a cup of coffee you know do a chore because it would take like 
quite a while for a one to two minute video to buffer. And so when we talk about like, I don't know, it's funny to think about how technology and like the ability to access media through technology is so much more abundant now and other things are less abundant, like salmon. And maybe all of history is just fluctuating abundances that sort of mm -hmm. affect each other in some way. But the, like, not only was there so little media being made that was available but that like it was so hard to get it like and and if it was something was rated r like um what what then <laughs> yeah that's so true that that just gave me a memory that i hadn't thought of maybe ever since it happened but in regards to this movie which is like the effort that i had to take to get it like i <laughs> went to the small local video store and like rented it. And I remember feeling I, I think I had either just come I think I had just come out. So I was still feeling sort of like, I felt like I was renting porn, like I felt yeah. extremely exposed. And it was like my whole day was about how I was gonna go rent that movie. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yeah. and like, and be cool about it. Yeah. Most people's video library was just like what your parents recorded on TV. And so like you had 100%. to like go. Yeah, that's why we had Short Circuit 2, but I never saw Short Circuit 1. Yes, exactly. You had to go out of your house, acknowledge what your interests were to a stranger. Yes. <laughs> yes, 100%. Or to a family member who had driven you to the video store, which is why yeah. when I was a teenager, because I'm a fucking psycho every time i had a crush on somebody i couldn't acknowledge the crush i had to like find a roundabout way to like get myself to have an excuse to like watch something my crush was in which is how i ended up reading the book of american psycho because i was like i love christian bale <laughs> i really want to see american psycho but i can't get my mom to rent it for me if i don't have the justification of wanting to see how it compares to the book oh my god that's so funny it's so weird it's like preparing to be subpoenaed yeah. <laughs> you need to build a case uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> we need a theory of the evidence uh -huh. of how sarah does not have a crush on anyone and it's fine. <laughs> well, I, this is a this is a fantastic prelude. I feel I do feel like it's important occasionally for the elders to let people know how arduous it was to consume media. Uh, so thanks everyone for humoring us. When I was your age, I had to walk uphill both ways to the Hollywood <laughs> video on West Burnside and try and convince my friend to get bound. She never wanted to see it. Yeah, I had to look at gays on the back of movie boxes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So so without further ado, <laughs> let's dive in to uh, some cheerleaders. Sarah Marshall, mm -hmm. tell us what happens in But I'm a Cheerleader. What is it? <sighs> I'm so excited to tell you. <laughs> so this movie is about Natasha Lyonne playing a cheerleader. And I can't even remember her name in this movie. Megan. <laughs> Megan. She's just Natasha Leon to me. <laughs> Megan has an idyllic life. She loves her cheerleading squad led by Michelle Williams. And she has a really handsome boyfriend who she hates making out with. And her parents are Bud Court and Mink Stoll. So you can't go wrong with that. What a great pairing. <laughs> <laughs> It's so good. <laughs> we see a day in her very wholesome life. This movie has this like slightly out of time, like blue velvety quality yeah. where it's the 90s, but it's also kind of the 60s, mm -hmm. which I love. All of our favorite movies, we say it all the time, but all of our favorite movies have that weird like 80s, 90s anachronism that is also 50s, mm. 60s somehow at the same time. Yeah. And like this seems like an obvious statement, but I think it's worth thinking about that like decades are defined culturally and aesthetically, not just by where they are, but their adjacency to the past. Right. So if you think about how a league of their own existed in the time that it did, because at that point, the middle of World War II was 50 years in the past, which meant that like people were young adults who were, you know, swing dancing and getting in trouble in the 40s were like, you know, they were in their their early 70s. Like that's very different from being the age that people who witness that period of history are now the ones that are with us. Like there's and I think when you're young, you're like, yeah, people get old and you're like, no, there's like old like walking around with your little hand weights old or there's like you know old like it's hard for you to communicate what you're thinking about 
and the kind of accessibility of the past and the trauma of the past feels like a big part of what makes the time we're in. And the 90s were like, in the late 90s, the 60s, like the period before gay liberation, were like 35 years in the past. Mm. And now 35 years in the past of the late 80s when theoretically things were going well. They weren't, of course, <laughs> but... <laughs> People liked to say that. And they still are not great. Nope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, things have just been terrible this whole time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but in the 90s, it was like we were pretty close to the time period when no one wanted to pretend that it wasn't terrible. Mm. And when we were like, yes, it should be terrible. And now it's kind of I don't know what to make of the idea of that we're like, no, things are, are fine. But we are in a country controlled by cults and religious extremists. But anyway, boy, that didn't end up being as upbeat as I thought. Uh, that really brought us down. <laughs> that last part, I can feel me and Alex both just being like, fuck, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. It's a we speak truths here. I didn't do it. I'm just talking about it. <laughs> yep, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just like... Well, anyway, we'll get into that as we continue. But like, this is the 90s. This is the period when I was raised by liberal parents whose general idea was like, I don't care if you're gay, straight, purple, purple. polka dot. <laughs> right. The, this is the 90s when people would talk about their children being purple. And it's like, when is that going to come up? They were very accepting of a hypothetical potential purple child, but didn't want a gay. <laughs> Oh my God. First, Sarah, people still talk like that. They talk like that because boomer moms will like come into my Instagram comments and be like, I'm so happy you're sharing your life. I always tell my daughter, I, I don't care if she's gay, straight or polka dot, you know? <laughs> She has polka dots. You need to take her to the doctor. Take her to the fucking doctor. It's probably monkeypox. But part of the reason why I think this movie was so important to me is because like, and I'm sure they weren't perfect, but I would have killed for like that kind of neoliberal parent. Yeah. Like I was so closeted and with very conservative parents. So I feel like that experience really defines like the landscape of my experience watching this kind of content, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that like, this is when um, they would tell you about all the range of things they would be fine if you brought to the table, but there's plenty of evidence to show once you brought to the table that you were indeed purple or polka dot, they actually were not very fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although my dad well, did just... give me when I when I took to wearing sarongs at 12, my dad did very sort of in passing. My dad was born in 1931. Uh very in passing was like, you know, if you're one of them, I don't care. Said that literally <laughs> word for word. If you're one of them, I don't care. And I was like, that's as good as we're going to get and I thank yeah. you. Thanks dad. Yeah. It was on my way out of the house when I was 12 years old wearing a sarong. <laughs> oh my god. Not bad. I mean, this is like, God, not to get too deep into all of this, but Alex, that moment was like not too far away from the America that like where it was controversial as to whether, you know, Ryan White, the child who famously, I think, contracted HIV through a blood transfusion or some kind of medical procedure, like whether it was right for his entire town to exile him right. angrily. Right. Yeah, yeah. This was like this was like five to seven years later. And my dad was like, yeah, whatever. It's fine. Yeah. And this is like for adjacency via a disease. It's interesting. Anyway. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's this long running American idea, quite obviously, that queerness is a contagion that is more dangerous than anything else we can conceive of. <laughs> Ellie, I loved the video you posted today where you're talking about bisexuality. Oh, my God. And you were like talking about how, how you were so drawn to women and it was like eating apples the whole time. And then now that you have a husband, you it was like someone had presented a banana and you were like, that's good. And you're like, and that's how I think we should teach bisexuality in schools. <laughs> it's so fucking funny. <laughs> a few people got so 
mad at me about that <laughs> joke that I turned off the comments. I just was like, I can't right. handle this. Exactly. Yeah. To Sarah's point, like the fear that this is a contagion that's going to be uh-huh. sort of injected into brains via Neuralink at schools or whatever. Yeah. Literally this guy, I mean, this is so typical, but this guy with like an American flag and his profile picture and like proud husband, happy wife, happy life, like literally commented like, teach bisexuality in schools you sick fuck <laughs> like something like that and i was just like God. blockity blockity block we teach about the confederacy in schools you know sure do sure do and maybe we should reapproach how we're doing that actually because i yeah. don't think it's going well yeah i mean I th- you should pitch it as a five-year failed experiment not a thing that's worth taking seriously <laughs> oh my god like that dude And this is not like a brand new thought, but that dude is the exact same kind of dude who would call his baby son a lady killer. (laughs) You know what I mean? And it's like the irony, the denial, it's the dissonance. It makes me crazy. But thanks for liking my uh, Instagram reel. Loved it. (laughs) It's important. Yeah. So what's But I'm a cheerleader about? It's very simple. Megan, she loves, is it Melissa Etheridge she has a poster of? (laughs) She sure does. Uh, Come to my window. Um, she's got like a hand embroidered Georgia O'Keeffe pillowcase, <laughs> which is just so great. She's eating tofu now. She's a vegetarian. That's a sign. And so her parents have an intervention and she is bundled away to apparently like a large Victorian house at the edge of her town um, to go to conversion camp, which is run by... Dun, dun, dun. Kathy Moriarty and RuPaul. Perfect. (laughs) Perfect pairing. And Kathy Moriarty's son, Rock, who's not allowed to sip things. He has to chug. (laughs) (laughs) And he has a way with the broom handle. Mm -hmm. He really has a way with everything, frankly. (laughs) Yeah. And so, Ellie, can you talk about just like the aesthetics of this movie for a minute? Oh, my God. I mean, it's so campy in the best way. I mean, there's something almost a little like John Watersy about it, you know, totally. don't you guys think? Oh yeah. In the cinematography, in the color, yeah, it's like highly stylized, which I, I feel like did so much for their ability to make a movie about gay conversion camp such a straight comedy with like like a a romantic comedy yeah like as I was watching last night I was like that was a lift like they make it look very effortless but that was that is not easy to do Mm -hmm. I feel like the heightening of everything is a big part in addition to the like incredible writing and everything but that made it so successful yeah I feel like it's like the aesthetic world of the movie like makes the lightness of the script and and the stakes work and it's also like it's so you know telegraphed in a very broad comedic way but also I think makes it make sense that this entire thing is run by closet cases (laughs) like where all Kathy Moriarty wants is a woman and all RuPaul wants is a man and all rock wants for that matter, but that they're like trying so hard to be straight that they have accidentally made this universe. Who's that? Like they're wearing latex at the graduation, I think. Yes, they are. <laughs> or something latex adjacent. <laughs> There's also this thing that happens. Uh, and I think that this is part of the the John Waters of it all, including Mink Stoll, which is like a great, you know, sort of a classic recurring Waters character. But all of this sets feel like their sets like which is really great like the the gay bar that they're at like feels the cocksucker alex at the cocksucker like everything feels like a set and so it feels like it's kind of a dream a little bit as well on top yeah. of it being so campy yeah. and that's like yes. a nice place to be even though you're in a horrible place <laughs> yes like there's things that i noticed i probably noticed them years ago but i hadn't remembered like little choices like uh Kathy Moriarty is like she's watering those plastic flowers (laughs) which is like insanity but it's like stuff like that just keeps you in this playful space where it's just very clear that it is a space like reality but it's not reality and that Mm. helps you be able to enjoy like kind of like not sink down into the trauma of it all (laughs) like you're then kept in in the comedy and in the flirting and the sort of becoming who you are part of it all which is so 
Great. Well, it goes the opposite, the slightly opposite direction that like all of the like, again, sort of all the like the queer indie stuff with the exception of Greg Araki's movies, those come to mind. But like, again, the queer movies of the 90s went the other direction, which was like, let's get real. Like, we're going to get so real, it's uncomfortable. And like, this was like, let's take that over here. Like, maybe let's uh, be a little more buoyant. Much appreciated. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting, too, to think about, like, in terms of what was going on culturally in the queer world then, because, like, I don't, you asked earlier, Alex, like, I didn't see this right when it came out. I think I saw it in college a handful of years later for the first time. Mm -hmm. And in that, like, the early 2000s, like, all the queer stuff, it was like everything was about, like, pain and like poetry about like your boots stomping on like <laughs> concrete and everyone was very serious and I understand all of it and I was a victim of all like I wrote terrible poetry and took myself very seriously but I feel like this movie was such a relief because of its juxtaposition with all of that yeah you guys absolutely. you know what I mean yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sarah, I was just going to say, we talk about that all the time in, in storytelling and like issues related stuff that we're interested in is like, we really need a veneer of humor often to like, it's not to say that like mm-hmm. things that are sort of like presented in a serious way, that's not important and, inc- and often resonant in ways. But like what I relate to most is like, if there is some farce in there, because the reality and the text of the subject matter is so heavy that sometimes it can be hard to look at it exactly head on without yourself buckling yeah right and like I don't know that like movies like there's some kind of like a fermentation thing maybe happening with movies that really work on you where like you are given like kind of food by like comedy or levity or aesthetics that allow you to like have the energy to go deeper into yourself sometimes Mm. I don't know I think that mainstream media is like so focused in many ways on treating the viewer like an idiot that like when you get the chance to do something as an auteur or something like it then you might be inclined to make things as hard for the audience as possible but that's just kind of like it can be a choice defined by the inability to make that choice previously I think it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what allows people to grow the most through movies although I also love ridiculously viewer hostile things sometimes (laughs) but that's not what this is (laughs) It also strikes me that this movie is kind of a precursor to Barbie because this is like we're seeing the effect of a built environment that has large swaths of it painted like extreme pink and like it really is doing something. Yeah, it feels like you you can feel this and that DNA, I feel like. Yeah, color does a lot for us. Yeah. So yeah, so she gets bundled off to conversion camp. She meets the other girls, Melanie Linsky, Sinead, Goth, born in France, Graham, played by Clea Duvall. So we know where that's going. If any, <laughs> has anyone seen a Clea Duvall movie before? <laughs> and some other people. It's not that big of a deal. There are boys too. There's Joel, Rufio, and the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> Clayton who works in retail uh, yeah. yes. they're all re- they're all yes. great I just you know we'll be here all day if I try and yeah. list 10 characters you guys yeah but they're all wonderful and basically you know there are I think five steps you have to start by admitting you're a homosexual so they sit Megan down and this is like I think really I wonder, Ellie, if this like falls in the bucket of like things you hadn't seen before in movies, because I was very struck by and kind of wish I had thought more about (laughs) as a a younger person, the scene where she's like, well, everyone looks at pictures of girls and they're like, yeah, but they don't think what you're thinking. And she's like, well, I just thought everyone was thinking what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. Was that resonant? (laughs) Yes. Oh, yeah, it was resonant for me. It was resonant for you. Yeah, because I think that there is like one of the things that we don't do enough in American culture, I think, is like communicate about what the human condition feels like for us. Because mm-hmm. and I think especially around issues of gender and sex, you can just kind of like spend a lot of your life being like, I guess we're doing this mm-hmm. and I guess we all have to do this. Yeah. So that's fine, I guess. But nobody else likes it, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> I thought that moment was really great. It wasn't really resonant for me because I knew I was queer pretty young and I was Mm -hmm. very aware 
like my idea was that like almost nobody else has those thoughts. Mm -hmm. And that was something I needed to keep under lock and key and like Mm -hmm. protect against having discovered. So my experience Mm -hmm. was not like Megan's, but I think that Megan's experience in the film like is shared by a lot of people, you know, Mm -hmm. especially back then. Yeah. When it's not talked about. Yeah. And yeah, so she admits she's a homosexual. She's like, I'm a homosexual. And then they can start with the therapy, which again, Kathy Moriarty and her infinite wisdom is like, all right, you're going to learn about one of the most important parts of heterosexual culture, friendship, which it's like, that's just not true. Heterosexuals aren't supposed to have friends. And so pairs everybody off. And what do you know, Megan ends up paired off with Graham, who's initially very prickly, but then they start to really bond. And then one night, everyone sneaks off to the cocksucker club. And after that, Graham and Megan get together. They have, you know, they <laughs> they have a very Victorian sex scene, I would say, which is like a lot of like gentle kissing and hand holding and a little bit of finger sucking, which is really great. And I also wonder about like whether there was any kind of back and forth with the ratings people. Yeah, I remember thinking it was so PG when I was watching it last night, but when I was rewatching, because I don't think I'd seen it um, until last night for maybe like 15 or 20 years or something. Wow. And there's a moment when I don't know whose stomach it is, but you see like one <laughs> of their bare stomachs and then the other person is like just grazing their stomach. <laughs> and I was like, that's the hottest thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, It's such a small thing that you would see in a lot of like medium smutty scenes in movies with young like teenage love or whatever but it was like seeing something so mundane like that but between two girls was like incredible like it was like just enough it was perfect you know yeah it feels like I don't know it's yeah it's hot and um that's the nice thing about the rating system like they can't prohibit you from making a hot movie can they (laughs) yeah (laughs) no they can't (laughs) And so, yeah, they have this, like, special evening, and then the next morning, Kathy knows, and shockingly, Megan sticks to her guns, that's the phrase, and Graham is like, no, I have to go through the therapy, I'm going to stay, I'm going to lose my trust fund if I don't, so... Megan goes off to live with our XX gays who previously the campers were protesting Richard Mall and Alex, who's the other guy, the guy you feel should be Eugene Merman. Yeah, I don't know what his name is, but I was like, I didn't realize that Eugene Merman was cloned from this person who is in this movie. This who is this? I love them, though. This actor's name is Wesley Mann. Love it. And I love Wesley Mann in this movie. Which one is he? He's the much shorter one. (laughs) Yeah, Bull from Night Court's partner. Okay, gotcha. He's so (laughs) cute in this movie. Yeah. He's adorable. So good. Yeah, they both, they have like a very nice communicative relationship. And so Megan shows up at their house and is like, I want you to show me how lesbians live, what they wear, where where they go. And they're like, honey, we can't show you how to be a lesbian. There's no one way to do it, but you can stay here with us and Rufio while you figure things out. And because her parents have banished her, she's been banished. And so she tries to move on. Rufio is there because she caught him trysting with another camper and screamed like a stuck pig, which, you know, what are you going to do? I hadn't seen so we so Sarah and I ended up in a in entertainment on a cruise with Dante Bosco and I hadn't seen this for like 20 years and had I seen it more recently I would have dedicated at least 24 hours to asking Dante 150 questions about making this movie at like Yeah. What are your top questions? Just like he's like Dante was a teen star, both as a like in a hip hop dance troupe in the 80s and then as Rufio in Hook was a heartthrob is like kind of a absolutely lovely, but like a really sort of like not tough guy, but like he's like a he's like a very sort of traditionally masculine guy and i would just love to have known like was it a difficult sell like when you read the script what was it like shooting like what was the environment were you worried 
particularly with this like dearth of queer media, were you worried about being in something like this, having some impact on your career? Like what calculus when I would, I will ask him these questions, but like those are, I would have cornered him on the boat and asked him these questions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a movie that like, I think was made for a very low budget as like a pretty independent project and Mm -hmm. has like a really stacked cast. And that's really interesting, too. There should be an oral history of this movie if there isn't. Totally. Mm. I'd ask Richard Maul the same questions. Well, he's got the Night Court millions, so it seems like he can do whatever he wants by the late 90s. I'm I'm fascinated by people who made these, like straights in particular, who made these choices before it was popular to make these choices. Like these were risky moves for... Like, I'm a man. <laughs> like, these were at that time, like, for, like, typecasting yeah. and stuff. So, I don't know, I'm fascinated. Well, and it's so funny how, like, in the 90s, like, we had this these ideas of it being, like, faddish or permissible, but it was, like, only permissible compared to in the past, right? right? There was, like, the concept of lesbian chic. Right. And, of course, famously, the episode of Sex in the City where Charlotte tries to join the lesbians. <laughs> I remember that. Oh, my God. <laughs> So um, Megan is living with the XX gays and basically she decides that she is going to try and win Graham and crash the graduation into heterosexuality that has also included final exams of like simulating sex while wearing body stockings. (laughs) You know, so that's cool. Oh my God. That scene was so dark. I was kind of shocked. I was shocked last night by how dark that was. Yeah. It was really disturbing. (laughs) Like that whole like montage of like the the final, yeah, uh-huh. the capstone class. It's both dark and, and I imagine like on some level like kink indoctrination. I imagine some people mm. left with a grand fondness for bodysuits after that happened. Mm, maybe. <laughs> I, I feel like Kathy Moriarty, one thing she has going for her is that she's based her conversion therapy model not on scripture but on those like novelty cocktail napkins they sell with old stock images of 50s women. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And so Megan uh, and Rufio crash the graduation. Graham like doesn't want to go with her. Megan is dejected. And then she like goes and gets her pom-poms and she puts on her cheerleading uniform and this whole movie has this like kind of autumnal affect like there's a lot of like one thing I love is that like there's this lush lawn in front of Kathy Moriarty's house that like ends abruptly and just turns to like dead brown grass (laughs) it's like a fairly desolate landscape aside from the brightly painted set pieces and just like Natasha Leone, like stepping out alone cheerleader in her orange cheerleading uniform, like and she and she does her cheer for Graham and she's like, one, two, three, four, you're the one that I adore. Five, six, seven, eight. Don't run from me because this is fate. And then she's just like standing there and she's like, I love you. And it's like, ah. <laughs> uh, it's so because Graham's given her a hard time about being a cheerleader throughout the film. And then she talks about how she's never felt the way that Graham makes her feel, except when she's cheerleading. (laughs) And Graham is like, I would love to see you cheer. And it's very sweet. Yeah. And then she gets to see her cheer and it works and they run away and it ends with them kissing in the back of a pickup truck end of movie it's perfect it's a perfect movie i feel like this both this and and 10 things i hate about you came out in 1999 and they both have the perfect plea for the other partner like that you have the um i love you baby and then you have this like that is the barely straight teen comedy and then this is the extraordinarily queer uh plea but they both have like perfect presentations of love at the end for the other person and i want more people i know that this is like a well-known movie but i kind of feel like this is not necessarily a movie enough people have seen so I, i want people to know that i think it's a movie people remember fondly but like i bet there are so many people like who are adults or who haven't watched it in like 15 or 20 years or who are kids who haven't seen it. And like, I think this movie is like, not that I'm a parent. What do I know what I'm talking about? But if I did, I would say that like, I think this would be appropriate for like a 10 or 11 year old. Yeah. Well, maybe there's a little bit much sex. It's a 13 year old. When I was 13, I was allowed to watch absolutely everything and it worked out (laughs) fine. So, you know, make it that what you will. 
farewell my concubine anyone <laughs> oh my god i watched dirty dancing with my parents when i was like eight yeah you know also something about the end i hadn't remembered this and in terms of like the contrast to what we were talking about with like all the 90s like suicide tragedy queer movies it's mm. so beautiful they get together i cried it's 20 years later i fucking cried it was so oh, wonderful yeah. mm. like t- last night i cried i couldn't <laughs> believe it and then the little button which I had totally forgotten is that Megan's dad is at like a P flag meeting. Oh yeah. And it's really funny. And then Kathy Moriarty is there too. So it's like, cause you're kind of like, yeah, fuck her parents. They disowned her. She's going to have love, romantic love, but then they leave you kind of like, okay. And maybe her family will come around. And even this crazy camp leader will come around toward her own queer son, which I was like, that's such a, it was like a 10 second scene. But I was like, that was such a little offering. I loved that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was, yeah. It's so lovely. It's like a kind, gentle movie that is offering cutting commentary on on conversion therapy. Like what? Our Herculean lift. It's genius. I think it's genius. Well, and I think like there's something very important about utopian storytelling. And I think maybe that's clearer to people now than it's been in a while Mm -hmm. but i don't know ellie you were saying earlier that you were raised in like a conservative household kathy moriarty at some point says you know it's good that she's getting in now because once they go to college it's hard to like undo stuff like what was your going from a you know conservative household to college like it sounds like you found this movie then like was was that liberating So liberating. I definitely was lost to college. I mean, it's, it's, my family was interesting because they're like, I am from a, like a New York Jewish family mm-hmm. who is like, they're not super conservative at all anymore, mm-hmm. but they've changed a lot in part because of me and my sister have been like, get it fucking together over the years. But it was just that kind of nineties, like conservatism where yeah, my my parents would be kind of like, we're not racist. And mm. and also, it's okay if someone's a fruit, but like, right. I don't want to see right. it. I don't want to see mm-hmm. it. And it right. was definitely not okay if I was going to be gay, you know, and but in this very Jewish way, it's like really different from the like, I think Christian conservative way, because there's no hell attached. There's no morality. It's all about like the hell is like that I would be uh, taking my parents' dreams away from them. Like that's mm-hmm. the hell. And right. the dream of having like a Jewish son-in-law and like all this shit, all this shit. Who wants that? <laughs> well, and now they have one. I married a trans guy and we're, we have like a Jewish family. It's so funny. But yeah, it was more like that. But I just knew it was going to like crush them. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know any queer people. It was like Illinois, like my family moved to Illinois. So it was like Midwest, like 90s, you know. It was not, no. And then in college, I came to college on the East Coast. And I think for the very end of freshman year, maybe like early sophomore year, I came out. And that's when I started like devouring queer content, which Mm. was incredible and life-changing. One, I just have to share like one moment in the film that's very small that meant so much to me. I remembered watching it is like after the first night she kisses Graham, Megan mm-hmm. kisses Graham at the bar. It's their first kiss. It's like the first kiss she's ever had with a girl. And she like hates those kisses with her boyfriend so much, you know? <laughs> Rightfully. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, straight, gay, whatever. That guy needs a course. <laughs> Disgusting. Dis- they made it so perfectly gruesome yeah. with the way his tongue is coming at her. It's horrifying. Yeah. But there's this scene the next morning that's very extended and it's just like a still shot on Natasha brushing her teeth and like staring at herself in the mirror. Mm. And I remember watching that and having, um, cause I, I was already out. Yeah. By that time. So I remember watching it and, and recognizing that moment hmm. of like, I think it was like the first when I went home and was brushing my teeth or the morning after I like had kissed a girl for the first time, I remember just looking at myself in the mirror or being like this mouth that I'm brushing, like has like 
kissed a woman <laughs> like, <it's just> like, <laughs> like being shocked yeah. like by myself yeah. but also like amazed in awe or something and I felt like that was a totally silent scene it was really small and I'm probably projecting maybe but I don't think so I think I that's think so I think that's kind of what that moment was about Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it feels like that. Yeah. And if not like exactly precisely that in the way it was written, it's like, you know, movies, I think, work when we feel like we can see ourselves in them, like not in the generic way of like someone we would like to see ourselves in, but like re- remembering or realizing like what these moments that we share as humans are are like. Yeah. Yeah. And even if it wasn't, even if it wasn't intentional, and I think it was intentional, and I know, I know this scene you're speaking to well, there's this, like, in- increasingly the idea that, like, a movie has to just, like, cram as much, like, action and imagery and, like, stuff into it takes out those moments of, like, breathing or, like, silence for 30 seconds to 45 seconds, where even if it's not by design, like, your ability to, like, to project on the character and to see your experience in them and find resonances is, you know, it doesn't happen as often as it used to. <laughs> oh man, that's that seems true. Yeah, it's nice to see those moments of pause where you're able to like sit with the character and see yourself yeah. in elements of them. That's what I like about French movies. You get to watch people walking around not knowing what they're thinking because you're not being told what they're thinking, but you get to kind of think about what people think about. It's nice. I was just describing to some, I was talking with someone about Gus Van Zandt movies yesterday, and I was talking about the scene in Drugstore Cowboy where for like 45 seconds inexplicably, you just see William Burroughs get out of a chair. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to see that, you know? It's a long time and you just see him beat. Like you don't, and I was like, I that mm-hmm. sticks with me for no reason for so because you just see totally. a person exist for a while on screen. And I was like, that's great. Yeah. Wow. Yes. And also every reason. <laughs> this is so pretentious, but I wrote my like undergrad film, like I went to film school and I wrote my thesis on Jean Dielman. Have you guys seen that film? (laughs) No, wait, I know. Is that the one, one of the really long ones? I think it's pretty long. I don't remember now. It was so long ago, but, but you see, it's like this, I think she's French and, or Belgian. I don't remember, but like, whatever. (laughs) She's basically like a housewife who's also a sex worker. And then she like kills her John, I think at the end. I've heard of this. I want to see that. Yeah. There are these long scenes I was obsessed with where you're literally watching her in real time chop potatoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. That's what we need. Oh my God. I love it so much. And there's so much going fucking on, but you have to sort of sit with mm-hmm. everything that is stirring up oh and imagine. I was obsessed with it. I was like, this is a work of genius. <laughs> you know. I haven't thought about that movie since I was like 19. I'm glad that you brought it up. Totally. Alex, speaking also of other media you like, I just want to make sure this comes up. This movie was directed by Jamie Babbitt. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for everything. Mm-hmm. Produced by Andrea Sperling. Thank you, Andrea. And also produced by Leanna Creel, who was the summer replacement girl, Tori, in Saved by the Bell. <gasps> yes. No. No. <laughs> And she's gay. That just confirmed Tori's les- uh, les- <laughs> lesbianism. Wait a second. Do you mean the Tori with the leather jacket and the curls? Yes. <laughs> yeah, lesbian leather Tori. <laughs> that fairy Tori. She's queer. Yeah. Oh my God. I knew it. <laughs> oh my God. I'm like hyperventilating a little bit. Me too. I'm freaking out. Can you guys tell people, because not everybody who listens to the show has Saved by the Bell literacy. It's fine. Because Tori, I feel like, is kind of a paradox character. Yeah, I can't remember exactly what what happened or why it happened. Jesse and Kelly were busy for some reason. I think that, yeah, like, I think maybe, yeah, they were shooting something or they're busy or a contract thing or whatever. And for a handful of episodes, the producers were like, 
I don't know. How can we how can we make up for their absence? Well, I got I have an idea. Let's put a dyke on a bike. Basically, let's put a let, let's put a motorcycle lesbian to become Zach's love interest at this time. <laughs> Zach is a lesbian, so it does make sense. And then strangely, because of how most people watch Saved by the Bell, which was like in syndication, the episodes never ran sequentially. Yeah. And so you would just <laughs> randomly get an episode that fucking Tori was in. And you were like, oh, yeah. where is she from? <laughs> Why is she here? <laughs> Oh my god. Why cannot Tori and Kelly and Jesse coexist peacefully? You never see them together. Right. And we've talked about this so much. And Ellie, this this is something I feel like will probably resonate with you. Because of that dearth of queer media, you had to read between the lines, yeah. project, force resonances. And she was just so subtextually queer yeah. that it wasn't too hard. But it was like, you were like, I like this girl for some reason. Yeah, that's exactly what I felt. Because I was really young when Tori was happening. And I used to watch Saved by the Bell after school. Like, you know how they would play like five episodes in a row. Yes, totally. Yeah. And I remember every time Tori came on, I was just kind of like, hmm. <laughs> like, you know, but I like didn't know why I was into it. I just knew I was. Also, she looks now exactly like Chelsea Weber Smith. Oh yeah, Tori today looks like our friend, uh, American Hysteria podcaster. Oh, yeah. Like today, these days, looks just like an NB uh, scumbag boyfriend. She looks. Yeah, I mean, we say scumbag as as a uh, Homeric epithet, obviously. Absolutely, with love. Scumbag Adonis. Um. <laughs> I, yeah, this person was formative queer media for me. I think it really, it's another layer to what we've been talking about in terms of like the, the nuance of the kind of representation that was available in addition to there just being not a lot overall. And it's one of the parts that made it so watchable and like, so easy to like feel like such a warm blanket was that just like the young love mm. component like I feel like it mm -hmm. did a really good job capturing first love but also maybe like the specificity of like first queer love mm -hmm. like there's so many adorable really subtle really moving moments that like at the time I felt so connected to in an immediate way mm -hmm. as I was like going through it but then last night I felt so emotional because it brought it. It's so vivid and so well done that it like brought me back to like young queer love and like first queer love. It was an offering I feel to young queer people at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like think about all the like young love stories, like like 10 things I hate about you. It's like we'd seen a million of those. Mm -hmm. And there is a way where even though there's a lot more dimensionality going on with this movie, we were also getting one of those. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so much, you know, that that was a lot. Right. And that is, I don't know, it's like the ability to feel joy is very important mm -hmm. and telling stories where joy is something you expect. And I feel like, I don't know, it's interesting thinking about like teenage rom-coms because God knows I grew up watching them and I love them and, and have complicated feelings about the ones that I love. But it's also, it's interesting how like in those stories, and this is just, I think, you know, baked into how American society works at this point still. It's like the boyfriend is often like some kind of a status symbol as well. He's like proof that you're not fucking up completely. Like Jake Ryan and 16 Candles seems like the iconic example where like sometimes you want a bad boy, but sometimes you just want the boy who's like proof that you're like doing OK as a person mm -hmm. and kind of having that you know, there's a lot of that baggage baked into those stories, too. And I feel like something this movie, what it feels like it accomplishes to me is like addressing and pushing through the idea that like, because so many characters in this movie are like talking about how excited they are to be straight and they can't wait until they're straight and it's going to be so nice. And it feels like this movie is also able to communicate like, it's not it's not better like it should be, you know, mm -hmm. like, yes, you will have human rights, which is a problem that you can't, you know, you will be pursued relentlessly by people who want to kill you. But like, that's not a function of your sexuality. That's a function of the world that you're in and the people who are trying to 
kill you. Right. And that was the trick was that those were presented as intertwined is it's like you can have human rights. You cannot be abandoned by the government in the face of a plague, although they'll still do that to you later if you're straight. And so it was, yeah, it was forced as if those were combined and it was, but like it made people think that that's what they were aspiring towards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just, I don't know that like the conversion camp maybe in a way like achieves some kind of utopia because it's separate from the everyday world and it feels like this aesthetic bubble where these characters where Megan anyway can Megan and Graham can realize that like nothing could be better than what they have already right now mm-hmm. well it's like when they send the uh, the daughter from election to the to catholic school and she's like yeah Tammy oh my god I love Tammy and she lives in a lesbian utopia <laughs> I don't fall in love with the gender. I fall in love with the person. It's just that every person I've fallen in love with has been a girl. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. Totally. You know, there's also something um, kind of interesting and subtle there that I only noticed last night about, like, uh, the class difference between Megan and Mm -hmm. Graham and just, Mm -hmm. like, how that shows up in them navigating their choices Mm. to differentiate. You know, like it seems like Megan is kind of like maybe working class, like lower middle class. Her dad has a job at the plant. There's this whole thing about the unemployment for a while. Mm -hmm. And then her family is like presented as like, I mean, there's ways where they are. It's that double bind of like they're expressly loving, like they're very like they call her poodle. They're obsessed with her. They love her. But then Mm -hmm. at the same time, they're very quick to communicate that that's conditional. Like if she doesn't become straight or whatever. Graham's parents are like total assholes to her overtly, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. she finds it more difficult to leave and choose Megan and choose herself because she like doesn't want to give up her trust fund Mm -hmm. which like I just found that I felt like they handled that with care because that would be hard (laughs) like I can imagine (laughs) well it's also the only thing her parents have on offer to her exactly Mm. they don't express any love to her all she's ever gonna get from them is the security that comes with money. Right. And so to give that up means that she'll have nothing. And right. so ultimately she does give that up. And, and Megan also gives up the like other kind of love she was getting. And it's like, they don't engage that much with the class stuff, but I just think it's kind of, it's like a detail that's there. And I thought it was kind of, I thought they handled that really well and they didn't like overwrite it, overdo it, but it was like present. Yeah, agreed. Totally. Yeah, there's, I mean, and this is a short movie. This movie is like exactly 80 minutes long Mm -hmm. and it really fits a lot in. And I mean, something that also occurs to me to, to bring up is like parents really locked into the belief that like their specific goals and hopes and dreams for their children are the most important thing in that child's life. And the idea Mm -hmm. that like when you have a child, like you get to like sculpt them into a specific type of person or like your ideas of what they're going to do is then what they're going to do. And like, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Who told you that? Why would you think that you don't get to do that? Like you, I know. you are like damn lucky if your child is like able to thrive and is moderately healthy and your job is to like raise them so that they can then pursue the life that they understand that they need and it feels like such a I don't know yeah Ellie I appreciated a lot you talking earlier about how like you don't even need like hellfire as as leverage if you want to like guilt your child out of the their authentic existence Mm -hmm. like it helps but you don't need it a hundred percent yeah and that was totally I think that was what my parents had to go through like they had to move away from this idea that you know I think probably a lot of it had come from their parents, generational, whatever, but of like, I was expecting something when I had this daughter and it's traumatic for me to not get it. And like, therefore, like, this is about me and my pain. <laughs> and like, yeah. and that was something that was hard. I think it was hard for my parents to accept, to let go of their ideas of what they thought they had ordered, you know, <sighs> but they totally did. Like it can happen. They're awesome now. They were like really involved in my like big queer wedding. So just a hopeful anecdote for anyone listening that can happen sometimes. But yeah, that piece of it, that's like, 
That part's so weird. I can't imagine, especially I'm a mom. Like, I think it's so weird. The, the idea of dreaming about your kid's sexuality is the weirdest thing in the world. <laughs> Having a hope about it. Like, what the fuck? We really do live in such a culture of like people thinking they can decide what they're going to get. And I get that. I don't know. Like, there's a reason I'm not a parent. It's because I'm scared of it, you guys, because I want to nap all the time so yeah. much. I love sleeping. It's incredible. But like one, I think one of the scary things about it from my perspective is like the complete lack of control. Mm -hmm. And maybe if our country supported parents and pregnant people better, we would feel less out of control and we could not cling on to other things as much. But it's I don't know. But I think that's part of the that's what love is about, too. Right. Like when you love someone, yeah. you have to commit to loving, you know, like and don't love whoever someone is, whatever they do. If you're in an abusive relationship, that's different. But like when you love someone, you're committing to a mystery and you're committing to the totality mm. of them and to them continuing to explore who they are and you supporting that to the best of your ability. And that's, I think, the plagues you make in any loving relationship. Yeah, oh, That's such a beautiful way to um, to put it. I love that. And oh, thank you. I was really scared of that as a when I became a parent, like, because that was such a difficult part of growing up, like kind of feeling like I was supposed to be a thing. There was a powerful projection being put on me. And I always knew I was creeping toward this time bomb. I was a time bomb toward exploding that projection, you know, mm -hmm. but like, I think because of that, like I tend to go too far in the other direction with my kids like recently there was something where like I made my daughter like my five-year-old like a bun with cheese in it which she was obsessed with for months and she called it a cheese bun and I was like <laughs> I made you a cheese bun yeah. and she was kind of like I don't like cheese buns anymore like why do you think that I like cheese buns just because I used to like cheese buns and I was kind of like I am so sorry that I made an assumption <laughs> that you liked cheese buns. Thank you for telling me about you. you that's know? amazing. It's so great, like, though. But that's so good, you know. But it's a lot. Like it's yes, it's it's a lot of UN stuff, isn't it? <laughs> Ellie, I, we asked this question at the end, uh, and you're welcome to interpret it however you want. Take it in whatever direction. This is as much a Rorschach test about you as it is about the movie. We say, we know that Bud Court played a father in this movie, but who in your view is the daddy of, but I'm a cheerleader. I'll go first to give you a second if you want to, okay. um, if you want a second. I'm going to say in this case, it's Dante Basco's character, uh, who is not, it is not obvious or centered in the movie necessarily, but I really love that, you know, he sort of dealt this crappy hand by getting kicked out because we still have some internalized homophobia going on in the part of our, our main character. She hasn't reached enlightenment yet. And he is able still to find community at the end and the the house of the xx gaze i love that and i love that we also just from a dante bosco perspective we took a teen heartthrob who was loved by uh girls all over and he was like you know what i'm gonna play a gay <laughs> I love that. get it dante if there's anything the really savvy hollywood insiders know especially the ones who paid any attention to the newsies or one direction or fill in the blank fandoms it's that adolescent girls want to see a gay boy <laughs> totally or they want to see any boy and fantasize that he's gay and i'm glad for whatever mm -hmm. reason dante landed there he landed there so that's so mm -hmm. both character and actor i'm gonna say dante is one of the many daddies in this movie mm -hmm. who would you say is the daddy of this movie Okay, so I feel like Natasha Leone is the accidental daddy of this movie mm. because she is strong as fuck. She like shows up. She shepherds Graham away from the clutches of her trust fund, <laughs> tries and tries again. Like she believes in herself and in more and in love. I just feel like she's daddy, yeah. you know, and she's also mother. She's all of it. <laughs> She's everything. She's the alpha and omega. She gets kicked out with her suitcase and her little pom-poms. And she just fucking walks. Like, she doesn't cry. She's just like, this is my... Not that it's not good to cry, but I'm Crying just saying she's fucking tough as nails. And I love yeah. that it's within the container of a very femme presentation. She's yeah. just like secret daddy. Oh, I love it. 
Yeah. And he's very sweet. And sweetness and strength really go together. Yes. Um, in a way that they don't get credit for. I'm so desperate for Natasha Leone to notice me. I just <laughs> like... <laughs> I just want her to come on my podcast so badly. There's no doubt that she is familiar with you for, with your work. There's no way. Come on. That algorithm has to know that your work is for her. It is for her. <laughs> <laughs> She's my target audience. Oh, my God. Uh, and my daddy is Leanna Creel, who is literally a daddy of this film. I would love to hear about what mm. it was like. I can't imagine it was great to be a young lesbian working on Saved by the Bell <laughs> as a teen actor. And then like like within the same decade, I think, going from that to producing one of the only movies that made it seem not exhausting to be gay <laughs> of the era. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and, and just a quick side note, we didn't touch on this, but I feel like we hinted at it. This movie struggled with an NC-17 rating because it was because it was gay. And there was a big fight that was covered in the movie. This this film has not yet been rated. This is stuff that, Sarah, you've talked about on, on You're Wrong About. The rating system is crazy, very heteronormative, etc. Yeah, I love this film is not yet rated. I remember that very well. They struggled with that in a, in a big way. So being one of the parents of this film was not easy as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thank you, Tori. <laughs> thank you, Tori. We love you and appreciate you for, on, for many reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, Ellie, this has been a dream come true. It's really nice to have you here. For me too. It was so fun. Where do people find you? You can find me on all the social medias on Instagram and TikTok and I guess Twitter or whatever at <laughs> Ellie Kremendahl, just my name. And my podcast, Shame Spiral, on Instagram and Twitter at Pod Shame Spiral. Hell yeah. You need a podcast after how I spend my afternoons. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. That's it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for producing and editing this episode. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make our episode sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions and in exchange gets bonus episodes. Thank you for finding us on Twitter and Instagram and Blue Sky and Threads. Thanks for finding us there. All right. I think that's all you need to hear from me for now. Uh, don't forget that you, my friend, are good. Thanks for being here. We appreciate you. Have a wonderful week. <laughs>